Welcome to the Farmers I Know podcast. I'm Carolyn Hirschhorn. This is the show dedicated to conversations with people that are growing food to nourish their communities. So normally we spend the time with one farmer so they can share their stories. But every fourth episode, I talk with a bunch of people that have a shared passion for one topic that's relevant to regenerative agriculture. Today is all about seeds. This is a really exciting episode to be sharing with you. Seeds are such an important part of getting to a so-called sustainable food system. From these little specks, a huge abundance of life bursts out. And anyone that's planted a seed and watched it pop out of the soil probably understands the wonder and joy that that sparks. Once you fall in love with seeds, there's really no turning back. And that's definitely true for the people I talked to in this episode. So I wanted to start with where I get my own seeds, a small company called True Love Seeds operating in Philly. They work directly with small, sustainable farmers that are committed to social, cultural, and environmental health through growing. Maeve Aguilar from True Love Seeds explains it better. We are a farm-based seed company, and we offer culturally important and open-pollinated vegetable, herb, and flower seeds. Um, And we partner with over 60 farms in both urban and rural areas who are committed to community food sovereignty, cultural preservation, and sustainable agriculture to grow out all the seeds for our catalog. And we share our profits um, directly with our growers. So 50% of each seed packet sale goes back to the farmer that grew that seed. Oh, wow. Amazing. Thank you so much for that. I'd love to hear a little bit about you and if you could introduce yourself. Um, Yeah. Okay, great. My name is Maeve Aguilar. My pronouns are they, them, AJ in Spanish. And I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which is where our farm, True Love Seeds, is also based. And I was born and raised here in Philly. Um, My dad immigrated to Philly from Ecuador as a child and my mom's family have been here for some generations but immigrated here from Ireland uh, Mm. a while ago. Amazing. Thank you so much for that introduction. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about your connection to the land and specifically how you got interested in seeds and what seeds mean to you. Wow. Yes, absolutely. What seeds mean to me? I mean, you know, I could just like explode into a thousand <laughs> trying to describe. <laughs> so like seeds are, to me, seeds are um, everything. Sometimes I feel like I interact with them like so voraciously because I missed time with them before I like understood that this was a, a key part of the cycle Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes I'm just enraptured by them and by seeds and I, I love being around them. And I really think that they are the source, you know, seeds are so symbolic to so many people and so many cultures across the world. Um, and to me, it's almost like I can just get lost in being with them and looking at them and smelling them. A lot of them smell so good. 
people should just spend time with seeds because it's it's almost indescribable um the sort of like galaxy situation that it's like trying to describe to somebody what it's like to like sit under the sky like full of stars the night sky and just be your tiny human (laughs) self gazing up into that it feels the same way to me to gaze into like a handful of seeds it's the the same reflection of that just enormity and beauty and potential it's just very awe-inspiring I came across seeds and seed saving mostly because I came across Owen's work. They're referring to Owen Taylor, who's the owner of True Love Seeds. He was posting about all these really interesting plants that not that many people grow in this region, including a few different like Andean tubers. Mm -hmm. And my family is from the Andes people don't grow those things here. And I was like, who is this white guy <laughs> like growing these, you know, uh, mashua, whatever he was growing, yakon, um, you know, these different plants. I was like, who is this person mm-hmm. in Philly? Why don't I already know who they are? I don't understand, like, what is this? And I was just really curious to know more. Um, so I volunteered a few times at the True Love Seeds Farm Um, in maybe 2017, 2018. Mm -hmm. And even as someone who had been growing plants for a number of years at that point, um, it had never occurred to me that people grow the seeds you buy in the packet. I know that sounds a little silly, but my entire upbringing, that's just where you get seeds is the packet that you buy at the store. And it, it never occurred to me that there was like a before Right. Um, aspect to those seeds. So the idea that Owen with True Love could have an entire farm that the crops themselves are the seeds and, and that's the end goal, you know, it just, well, I can't even, it was just like the possibilities became endless. You know what I mean? Yes. It was like, once you realize you can save seed from so many things, you don't need a corporation to move forward with your life, essentially. That's very simplistic, but I think you maybe know what I what oh, I, I mean. Exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah. And so what does true love want to accomplish? And what do you think your goal within that organization is? Well, at this point, I'm, my role is as the office manager, mm-hmm. just sort of like overseeing and contributing to our day-to-day operations, which is filling seed orders that people place online, fulfilling those, shipping them out, inventory. Essentially, if you can picture like a basement with the full wall of the basement, just covered in bookshelves and all of those bookshelves are filled with jar after jar after jar of seed Mm -hmm. um some of them being like a two ounce jar full of bee balm seed other ones being like three gallons of corn or okra that's what our seed 
inventory and collection looks like. So really, I think training under Owen in a sort of seed librarian fashion <laughs> is what has been growing for me in the role over the past like year or two. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely a long-term goal for me. Some of Owen's background is that he started True Love after managing the Roughwood Seed Collection in Devon, Pennsylvania, which is the seed collection of William Boyce Weaver. So Owen was the seed collection manager there for maybe four or five years or something. And I am really interested in sort of like learning from him all of the different ins and outs of what it means to manage a seed collection and what that could mean, I think, for for the future of community seed sharing in Philadelphia. A long-term like personal goal is being involved in some way in a sort of municipal seed library operation like across the city of Philadelphia. And in my lifetime, I would love that to be something I could contribute to, to give back to my hometown and the city that I'm from. So I think that's some of my long-term goals. I mean, also every year at True Love, I have been a farmer. Mm. I guess that's a key aspect of uh, what I do at True Love. And it's a very, very special place very special farm and it always draws just really sweet genuine great people so it's always a very fulfilling experience to be on the farm team at true love yeah that's incredible i mean i think most small ecologically conscious and social justice conscious farms are such a great place for building community and do draw in some amazing people. And that's one of the things that interests me so much about all of the people that I talk to is the communities that they build around this beautiful idea. Mm. That's definitely um, true of my experience. Seed libraries and seed exchanges are a way to give people access to seeds. Trading and giving seeds is a simple act, but it's actually pretty radical. And it starts to build a web of connection between people in a community that like to grow. It's a critical step towards communities deciding what they want their food economy to be like. One local project I've come across that promotes the democratization of seeds is the Share a Seed Initiative. I caught up with the founder of Share a Seed at the Folklife Festival in DC this summer. So my name is Rihanna Kowalsik. I am the founder of Share a Seed, which is a DC born and bred mutual aid seed sharing and gardening program. And I use she, her, they, theirs pronouns. I don't know if a lot of people make the connection between seeds and social justice. Could you help draw that connection? Yeah, so I mean seeds, pretty literally, seeds contain a universe. They are a universe unto themselves and I think they're an excellent metaphor um, for all this kind of of work of growing and transforming and and holding culture and holding um, our needs, you know, our basic needs to to eat. So I started out my, you know, academic career as a journalism student and wanting to make the world better by telling stories and, and sharing information. And then I found public policy and I realized, oh, there's like a, a, an active version of policy, not just like poli-sci or the study of, there's like an active 
change-making lens to this. And so I went to school, both my master's and bachelor's degree are in policy analysis. And so I was like, there's a way to make change through policy, which I still believe is like a lever we have to pull and can't ignore. Um, but I initially focused on social housing. And I'd always, you know, loved food, cooked, I've been really interested in food. But it wasn't until graduate school that I was like, oh, I could do food policy work and talk about increasing access and, you know, protecting our food and our land and our natural resources from chemicals and um, supporting communities. And I was like, oh my. And so like, it was just this gradual process of finding this place to be like, oh, this, like this, this, this is possible. I could be doing this. Like, oh my goodness. And so that's kind of how I got to the place I'm in now. And to me, it's like, there's this version of gardening or growing or even farming that's like really elitist like any, you know anything can be elitist really mm-hmm. anytime you restrict resources and why not like increase that access why not introduce more people to seeds and growing you know if you go depending on where you shop um getting a little plant can cost you 10 or 15 or 20 dollars well getting a pack of seeds that's like 75 plants costs you two dollars you know and when you start saving seeds it costs you zero dollars right so i think like that's to me yes it's a little harder to grow from seed but like you know, democratizing seed access um, to me is really important, and it flows into bigger things too, like seed patents and you know allowing farmers to save and reuse seed and all those kinds of you know bigger bigger issues. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Can you talk a little bit more about seed democracy or that term that you just used? Yeah, so to me that just means like increasing access and and flattening sort of that curve, like you growing from seed shouldn't be like this special thing right it's people have been saving and sharing seeds since time immemorial and so why not increase that access why not share those things freely um you know one of the sort of i don't know catchphrases or whatever that share a seed uses is um creating abundance in place of scarcity and i think that's really apropos for gardening and growing because as gardeners, as growers, um, we often run into abundance and it's more than we can use or need or even want. And so sometimes that means we have a seed packet of 75 squash seeds and we only need four. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that means um, too many zucchini. And, you know, why not instead of wasting or like keeping that in sort of like a insular circle, if something like share a seed, I mean, my goal with it is to try and be in more places and connect to more folks so that I can move around and, and share those things and, you know, democratize the access to this, those resources. Cool. And so how did Share a Seed come about? So I started Share a Seed at the beginning of the pandemic, not like day one, um, but at the very beginning of 2021 when we were really in it. Um, I had been doing mutual aid volunteering with groups that were focused on food access, which is super important. And I just thought, this is an interesting time we're in when all these people are getting into gardening or the idea of gardening for the first time or returning to it, but a lot of first timers never tried it. Suddenly everyone wanted to garden. Everyone was baking sourdough. Everyone wanted to garden. And I thought, what a shame if we were to miss this opportunity really to connect more people to gardening and the land and loving plants and all these things just because there's no resources, you know, stores were closed. Even online stores were closed. Um, nothing was available. Um, and yet people who already grew or gardened had this abundance. They had this surplus that was just sitting there. And I thought, well, why can't we apply that same lens of, Hey, you've got extra, you know, 
canned goods or diapers or, you know, fresh corn. Well, why don't we apply that same lens to the extra kale seeds you have or whatever else? And like, let's share out those things too. And so it really just came, um, came from that premise. And I think the, you know, the work is simple, but it feels good. (laughs) That's amazing. And then you paired up with slow foods at some point. Yeah, so I'm on the board for Slow Food DC, and so I was already, I've been doing Slow Food work for over a decade, um, and when the program started, I I think I was not working at the time, so I was unemployed, like a lot of people, and really like worried about money management, and so I spoke with Slow Food USA um, about, I said, I sort of brought this to them and said, hey, there's just opportunity, like, and I think it makes sense for Slow Food USA to take on, because of your broader network, and like, we should do that. We should jump on this. Mm. And, you know, any big organization, they were like, well, maybe next year. It's going to take a long time. And I said, I can do this tomorrow. Like, what do you mean it's take a long time? So they were kind of hemming and hawing about it. Um, and luckily, um, a board member came to me and said, I, I will, you know, give you the seed funding because you are, you know, tight on funds right now. Yeah. And so that just like that one drop of like seed funding from that board member really allowed us to like launch and then like get the ball rolling and share a seed like the program really bloomed here and is a dc based program and so i i I consider it to be you know it's a separate entity but we work in collaboration and really align with a lot of slow food values while i was there i learned about another initiative called seed broadcast and chatted with the co-creator jeanette hartman Um, I started working with an artist, Chrissy Orr, who's based out of Santa Fe, and we started talking about seeds and um, seed saving, and we were working also with some other farmers and gardeners in New Mexico to kind of learn more about, like, well, why did they think seeds were important? Um, And through that kind of collaborative process, we decided to start this project called Seed Broadcast. And so at this point in time, gosh, we've been doing this work for about 12 years. Oh, wow. um, a lot of the, the projects that we've done have, have centered on this idea of seed stories. And, and I would say a lot of people ask me, well, what's a seed story? Does that mean like I need to talk about like this seed that my great, great, great grandparent like has passed down? And it's like, yeah, those are really important stories to share, you know, and the stories of the seeds themselves. But maybe too, those stories are bigger. Like maybe they're messier, you know, maybe they come in forms that aren't always spoken, right, and shared. Maybe they're like creative drawings and poems, maybe they're dance. And so really approaching this idea of um, seeds and seed saving and farming and gardening and food through a creative lens. Yeah. Um, and so at this point in time, um, we're here, the Folk Life Festival really just um, trying to, one, inspire people to think about the importance of seeds and their stories, but yeah. then also being inspired by their stories here. Really cool. So, um, yeah. That's amazing. Jeanette also shared a little bit about her background growing up on a farm. Um, I was born in the 70s, so I grew up in the 70s and 80s, where it was really about, like, get big or get out. Um, And along with, like, urban growth and pressures and development, like, our farms just um, became really unviable. Um, There was no way for us to continue. We had a big barn fire. Um, We had a lot of other uh, pressures and so really it was the end of our family farm and it was tragic. It was very tragic. But 
What was even more tragic was growing up in sort of a community and a society that saw me and my family as dirty farmers, right? A culture that didn't actually embrace the people that were doing some of the most important work is keeping them fed. Um, and so I grew up thinking that like the, the worst thing I could become was a farmer. Um, and it took me many, 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 many years to actually realize that what I was a part of, like that was deeply a part of me, was like the most beautiful blessing, right? It was a blessing. It was a blessing to think of all the experiences I had and, and how much that needed to be a part of my life again. And so I actually now farm in New Mexico with my family in a um, village called Anton Chico. Um, and we are market farmers, but we also create a lot of space on our farm for experimentation. Right now, I think we got a pretty good like um, system going on. But the one thing that that we realized early on when we were market farming was that you know we were buying seeds, we were bringing seeds in from other places, and we were growing for market in a way that I, we really felt was unsustainable. Was that the things that we were growing and the things that we were producing didn't really belong there? So along with that was really thinking about like how exactly do we grow and save seeds that are adapted or adaptable to that environment but also then how do we eat that food you know how do we teach others to eat that food how do we learn really how to grow something that isn't driven by the market necessarily but it can influence the market, mm, right? And it yeah. can also influence the health and well-being of our family and our community. Agriculture has a really unique history in New Mexico. I went to visit my aunt there earlier this year and learn more about the culture of food and farming in the region. While I was there, my friend told me about a guy named Ron Boyd, who was cultivating heritage grains that are more nutritious and better for the environment. We were offered an opportunity to start with many small quantities of old-time stuff. Uh, old-time stuff meaning probably a lot of it, you know, Bible time and previous. Mm. Uh, grains and pseudo-grains. I mean, grains you know are, I mean, these are grains. Grains, barley, wheat, rye. Pseudo-grains are like buckwheat, uh, sorghum, millet, uh, things that are small. Anyway, we started with 50 seeds in hand. And uh, uh, come on out and we'll... Uh, so the idea was, uh, and that started with Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. And Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance had, had acquired these old time things and wanted to see, you know, what traits they had, what was needed, how good were they, how useful are they. So these have become some of the, some of the outcomes of those small quantities that we started with. Uh, I mean, 50 seeds is not much. No, uh, not and at all. Some of them have succeeded and we've learned a lot about different things. Uh, but uh, these are more in just the seed increase spaces now, and then the bigger seed increases. Uh, Tibetan barley, uh, that's going to harvest today with a little combine. Oh, uh, nice. So the combine will come in and it takes out of the field and it takes the grain, you know, out of the, the head. And this is ready. Uh, purple, purple barley. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, chew on it if you like. Okay. Just, uh, you know, imagine it might be beer someday. It's just ready to eat? Yeah. Like that? Yeah. Yep. Uh, you know, and barley would be, well... Well, it's hard. I, I don't know. My, my chompers will chew on them. You might have stronger teeth than me. 
it's those back cow, cow yeah. teeth. Did I did I encourage you to bust a tooth? Hard no, no, no. I I uh-huh. proceeded with caution. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so what what made you want to do that? What made you want to sell the seeds? Uh well, I guess first and foremost, uh, I've always saved seed. I mean, since, I don't know, when I was a kid, uh, you know, we saved seed. Uh, you know, people, gardeners, well, if you didn't have seed, like around here, again, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, if you didn't have seed, I mean, you had to eat your seed. That's what it meant. If you didn't have seed, it meant that it was so tight. The season was so bad, you hadn't had a crop in two, three years, you had to eat the seed, and then you were up a creek. Uh, you know, these are, uh, you know, I carry, you know, oh, some wow. of the seed that is, you know, from this year. Wow, that is uh, beautiful. This year. Oh, it's uh, turquoise corn from Hopi Land. Oh, I started, I got this corn in, in 88. It was the first year we were doing it. I got six seeds. A friend, uh, uh, well, he had a small seed company, Talavaya Seed Company in Taos. And he had come from uh, First Mesa and uh, with this turquoise corn. So he left six seeds with me. I planted it by the doorstep that year, had, you know, a little... I suppose I planted, I mean, that was in 88. Mm-hmm. And I've probably grown 3,000 pounds of, wow. of that turquoise. So the contract this year is for 1,000 pounds of seed. Uh, when I got it, I called it, well, I thought I saw that this was, uh, you know, the corn is Hopi turquoise. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I showed it to a Hopi man once and he, he so gently and kindly said, this is beautiful. He spoke of it really nicely. He says, but this is not Hopi turquoise. Oh. He says, Hopi turquoise is grown on Hopi land in Hopi way. He said, this is turquoise corn and it came from Hopi land, but it's not Hopi corn. And I really <clears throat> could dig that. So this is turquoise uh, la- uh, corn from Hopi land. Yeah. Oh. Uh, I think, yeah, we, we, Again, I mean, in, in the process of learning to feed ourselves, we forgot that, you know, seed is not just something that's manufactured and you purchase from a catalog. I mean, you, you could say, yeah, it is kind of manufactured and you do purchase it from a catalog, but if there's no seed, there's no food. <laughs> and I think we've lost 95% of, of the variety of seeds. Uh, I mean, we've narrowed it down to what produces well, what stores well, what sells well and many seeds have almost been totally completely lost so uh, yeah we farm not because it's big paychecks but because i think food is important and if food is important seed is the is the beginning of the game so we must have seed that's the foundation you know now i think different Different stats that tell you different things, but somewhere around 80% of the world's seed is owned by six different companies, uh, biotech giants, uh, Syngenta, DuPont, uh, Dow, uh, ADM, uh, well, Monsanto, you know, own 80% of the world's seed. That's vulnerable. Uh, that's that's dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I totally so agree. We put a lot of intention into educating people about seed. I mean, it's cool. Save your seed, man. You can. Uh, and, uh, you know, you might not have a dime or a quarter in your pocket someday, but if you have seed, you can, you can do it. The southwest region of the United States is known for being particularly arid, and climate change promises to make it worse with less rain and higher temperatures. 
The Native Seed Search is an organization in Arizona that hopes to increase the agrobiodiversity of the region. They have about 2,000 varieties of crops adapted to arid landscapes, many of them rare or endangered. The collection represents the cultural heritage and farming knowledge of over 50 different indigenous communities. I had the chance to speak with Andrea Carter, who's their outreach and education manager and who has also done some incredible research on drought-tolerant seeds. So my name is Andrea Carter, and let's see, through my father, I am African-American and a member of the Powhatan Renape Nation, and my mother is from Tunisia. Um, I went to Cornell and studied international agriculture and rural development, wanting to work in food systems and, and dealing, similar to you, Carolyn, of issues of hunger and, and, and food justice. And, and um, with my mom being from Tunisia, having gone there growing up as well, I saw how drought was such a big issue in that part of the world. And, and they've been dealing with that for a long time and this issue of water scarcity how it affect urban populations, but also agriculture. And I had the opportunity after college to do an internship at this at ICARDA, which is the International Center for Agriculture Research in Dry Areas. Um, the ICARDA was based in Syria previously, but they had an outpost in for the North African region. One of the offices was in Tunis. And so I got to travel to the South of Tunisia and see the terraces and just how farmers have been doing this for hundreds, if not thousands of years, adapting to the climate and, and the when water would come and how to harness that and make the most of it. So that brought me to, to Tucson, to the University of Arizona to further my studies in arid land agriculture. And I wanna learn how to farm in the desert and how we're gonna grow food with less water. So I, I came out to the University of Arizona to get my doctorate in plant science, where I studied the physiology of drought tolerance in barley. So I was looking at what are the differences between the modern varieties and these traditionally bred varieties, right? Just through crop selection over years for selecting for, okay, this performs the best under low water. So I looked at those differences in the plants and specifically the roots as well, how their root systems compared and were different. And uh, so that that time here in Tucson while studying, that's what got me involved at Native Seed Search. Okay. So they're based here in Tucson as well. And um, I've been uh, familiar with them. I think if, if you're interested in arid land farming or heirloom crops, they'll come, you'll come across them for sure. It's a unique organization and it's work. So I had um, been introduced to some folks here at Native Seeds and and actually they they invited me when I was a student up to the Hopi Reservation to kick up Smovi to help with a seed saving workshop. And I fell in love with it. I said, oh, this is the coolest. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, they were doing um, a workshop up there with some gardeners and growers. And, and so that kind of tied me up with the organization, introduced me to their work and and so when I graduated, um, they had a position for the outreach agronomist. And that is what I currently am at Native Seed Search. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for that background. I'm wondering why seeds? What attracts you so much to seeds specifically? Sure. I think 
With seeds, it's about the human ability to influence plants Mm -hmm. within a season, within a series of seasons to adapt to the conditions of less water. So often, you know, climate change and and the varying um, results of that in the seem like these really big picture and, and huge challenges that seem above and beyond humans' potential to make a difference in. And yet with crop selection and seed saving, you can do that every season that you grow. So you grow a plant and by saving those seeds, you're immediately adapting that plant to the conditions of your field, to the weather, to the particular traits that you're interested in, whether it's yield or taste or color. So it's just a really immediate way to impact resiliency and to support that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that answer. I'm also wondering um, what the findings of your research were, like how, what were the differences between some of the more naturally adaptive plants that you were looking at versus some of the other controls that you were looking at? Sure. So first off was height. So, you know, with the Green Revolution, it was the semi-dwarf varieties. And that was so they would not lodge as much, particularly with increased inputs of water and fertilizer. The taller traditional varieties, they fall over and that reduces your yields. The problem is under drought conditions or stress, plant height decreases. And so for semi-dwarf varieties, that decrease can be such that you cannot harvest the plant with a combine or mechanical harvester. And so that for the traditional varieties, even if they've gone through a stress period, they're already, their height potential is such that is a decrease in that still allows for harvesting. So that's one way. The other way were super deep root systems. So out here we have caliche layers, which is a calcium layer in arid soils that builds up about two to three feet down. And that can be hard for roots to penetrate. Well, you also have that hard pan layer in agricultural fields that have been continuously tilled and laser level and all that mechanical heavyweight machinery on there. And so what we found in our fields is the, the roots of the older varieties, the traditional standard height varieties were able to penetrate through that hard pan layer. Mm. Nice thing about deep root systems is even in arid environments, you have subsurface moisture. So even if the top foot dries out, the further down you go, there's that consistent moisture deeper in the lower soil layers. And so by having deeper root systems, you're able to access that. So that's a big benefit to the plants. The other thing we found was early maturity. So if you think about in a desert system or with limited water, a plant is trying to get in and get out. So short growing season. So we found that they were maturing one to two weeks, sometimes three weeks earlier than the modern varieties. Long growing seasons are great under ideal conditions because that leads to more yield, right? You're putting more into the grain, you're growing, all those photosynthates are going into the grain. But under drought conditions, again, in limited water, a quick season ensures that you're make, making the most of water when it's available. And it may not be available later in the season, particularly out here in most arid areas where not only is water decreasing later in the season, the temperatures are increasing. 
So you're just trying to get out before those May temperatures where it can start reaching in the 90s and 100s out here. Oh, wow. So those were the main ones. I want to ask a little bit more about you and your background and how that led you to this work. I'm wondering, um, do you remember a time when you felt really connected to seeds that reminds you of why you started in this work? Before, um, when I was... When I was younger, I was the farm manager of an urban farm in DC, Common Good City Farm. No way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a wonderful on Wednesdays. Oh, cool. I'm a big fan. Awesome. Yeah, me too. It was really a one of the best experiences of my life was working there. When I took that position on, boy, I thought. I can do this, but I I showed up at that farm and said, oh my goodness, here's an acre, grow this food, feed, you know, feed people. And um, it was scary to do when I first started. And then I really, I often look back on that experience as impressionable in terms of like, I planted seeds and they grew and then we ate them <laughs> and shared them. And that really made an impact. I think seeds are really impactful in that way because it's so direct, the the impact of it and the results of it. You do a thing and you, you see the results of your work in a really tangible, grounded way. So I was just so impressed that it that it all happened. Yeah. You were counting on these little things to transform. And they did. Yeah. And they did, yeah. We were like, yes, they yeah. did the thing that I hoped, but I couldn't really believe because they look like these little bits of nothing. Yeah, and the transformative process, how, how it goes from a seed to a whole corn plant or a pumpkin. That's a really amazing thing, how it's all contained within the seed. Yeah, I try not to romanticize it, but it is pretty magical. Yeah, and it, it's a good reminder of the magicalness of the world. Yeah, we can forget that there is such wonder and, and more than the magic of it or as much as is also the empowerment of it. That was a big takeaway for me was that you can do this and you can help feed people in this like really direct way. It's not abstract. It's like you plant a seed, you water it, you eat it and you share that. <laughs> yeah. And and that there's such a sense of pride, I think, that comes out of that for the farmer, for the gardener, for the child that plants something. And we we get that feedback a lot in our work at Native Seeds, particularly because we're working with communities who have cultural connections to the seeds. So we'll hear from folks who who are working with people and they'll say, well, it was really impactful for their community to learn of their own crops. For example, to learn like there's Apache corn and Apache squash, to be aware that their family, their ancestors, their community had created this. Yeah. And to feel the pride from that. Yeah. I was just going to ask you um, with just a few minutes that we have left, how to transition away from breeding being this kind of scary topic that people sort of lump in with Monsanto and GMO. Mm -hmm. It's like, how would you sort of sum up that distinction 
that it's again by and for the farmers themselves. With plant breeding, it it became removed from producers mm-hmm. and was done by industry, by corporations. And so that followed a particular interest, which is financial for the company <laughs> that's breeding it. So I think what will really help in this whole conversation is celebrating it as a return to tradition and traditions of all farmers, native and non-native, that this was something that was done in the 1900s. There were, you know, 78 different varieties of of beets, and now we're down to like 17. Mm. So I think just getting back to that, this is a part of farming, a part of being land stewards, is the active participation in the breeding process, in the selection process, and the development of crops. Right. And then it totally fits into an Indigenous and Native way of farming and something that has been done for ever. (laughs) That's how we have these crops, like corn, beans, squash. This is all from Indigenous farmers. Right. So I think it's, yeah, it's like a return to that tradition and, and a celebration of it and and that not being taboo as it's been. And there's good reason it's been, but I think the antidote to that would be to have Indigenous-led breeding, to have farmer-led breeding and take it back into our own hands. Yeah. It's for and by the people. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. You can learn more about the work of the guests by checking out True Love Seeds, Share a Seed, Seed Broadcast, Real Grande Grain, and the Native Seed Search. Support this show by signing up for our new Patreon account. For a few dollars, you can help continue this project and get all types of bonus content. You can also support by rating, subscribing, and sharing the show with your friends. Follow along on Instagram and Twitter, at The Farmers I Know.